Here's a sneak peek of what we have today. So you mentioned trends in public health dentistry. Can you speak on those trends? Well, what's the situation like in Canada right now? Unregulated markets don't do a good job at distributing social goods, again, like health or dental care. One could argue that some type of universal dental care might be considered a policy innovation. There's a lot to know about in dentistry. We should be having discussions about business, entrepreneurship, and innovation. So let's start right here, right now. This is the business of drilling. So welcome back to the Business of Drilling. We're really excited to have you here today. This episode is gonna be a bit different than what we've been focused on. Uh, we've been focused on you know, life after dental school, what it's like buying a practice, optimizing a practice, scaling a practice. We wanna take a step back and we wanna take a look at exactly the why, the importance of what we do and how it pertains to community oral health. My co-hosts today are Christian and Bavia. They're both second year dental students as am I. Chris, Bob, how are you guys doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to hearing from a different perspective, a more public health perspective towards dentistry. This is definitely new grounds for us and uh, and something that we always have in mind. And I'm looking forward to speaking to, to Carlos. I personally also totally echo Christian's uh, sentiment. Our speaker today is Dr. Carlos Quinones. He's a dental public health specialist, and he's actually the director of the specialty training program at UFT Dental School. So, Carlos, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Vlad. So why don't we just kind of get right into it? Why don't you tell us your story, how, how you got from the beginning to where you are right now? All right. So I'm actually going to take you take you back because I think it is important. So um, I arrived in Canada in um, uh, 1982-83-ish, uh, maybe a little bit after that. Um, doesn't really matter. But as, as, a, as, a, as a young boy, uh, a family of... of um, of, uh, of a healthcare professional and a early childhood educator, that being my mom and dad, um, um, who, who were internationally trained professionals in essence, um, and had to sort of recertify to, 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 to begin their journey um, as professionals in Canada. Uh, we were actually refugees from El Salvador because uh, El Salvador at the time was undergoing uh, um, a civil war. Uh, my dad was a political actor in, in that. Um, and essentially, if we didn't leave, um, it would have potentially meant meant his life and ultimately um, our safety. So, you know, as the story goes in the cover of night, uh, we, we managed to to escape and luckily landed in Canada and Canada has been um, incredible. Right. I mean, we uh, just uh, just the other day, my dad was talking about putting up the new Canada flag every year. They buy a, a Canada flag um, um, and, and put up a new one every year. So Canada means a lot to us as refugees and ultimately now citizens. Right. Um, so why is that important? Well, it's important because in the cover of night, the only thing my my parents could get were their credentials, right? The pieces of paper that uh, ultimately we receive uh, when we graduate from our professional training. Nothing else was taken. Like it wasn't like we could grab things. It was these just these documents that sort of said, you know, uh, these individuals have education. So education, uh, professional credentials were super important in my family. And I'll tell you why this is important because my brother at the time was in medical school. School. My sister was actually in dental school, and I was just a young man out of control. Right? I was smart enough to to to, to get a good edge, you know, to do well in school. In fact, that's probably my saving grace. I managed to get A's uh, no matter what I did. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, my parents were trying to bring me under control somewhat and they decided that, you know, maybe you want to try your hand at medicine or dentistry, which are the sort of like the traditional, uh, the traditional approach to professionalization. Uh, they were, you know, they were saying, how about maybe engineering, maybe law, whatever, you know, the classic immigrant or refugee story, right? And by the name, by your names, I'm assuming you can sort of reflect on that personally. So, yep. so um, whatever the case may be, my my sister at that time, you only needed to get a, you only needed two years of undergrad to get into dental school. And essentially, I was just looking at the fastest way out of my house so I can you know live independently and start my own life and things like this. Now, I don't want to give you the sense that I had a that bad, bad home experience. It was wonderful. My, my family and my parents are absolutely wonderful. Um, but you know, I just was, you know, beat, beat to my own drum kind of thing. Right. <laughs> so I chose dental school, uh, simply as sort of like, a, a, a the quickest way to, to whatever, you know, familial responsibilities I felt I had. Um, and, um, you know, dental school was, was very interesting. I got in when I was 19, which to me is no, wow. no, no age to get into a professionalized professional Personalization process, if I could say that. So, you know, uh, dental school was an intense ride, but a wonderful ride. And I'm really lucky to have gone to the University of Manitoba. By the way, all of this is happening in Winnipeg. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm a Winnipegger. Um, um, now living in Toronto, obviously, but, um, but it was great. You know, um, I look back with such fond memories, even though at the time it was, it was, it, you know, um, it was pretty tough, but ultimately I didn't know what I was going to do because I was 23 and I was like, what the heck, you know, um, I, I, I like dentistry. Um, I knew enough to know that it was probably wasn't a good time for me to sort of do the traditional route of being an associate and, you know, have, having my own practice. Like that just wasn't in my, you know, my, my wheelhouse, my, my, my thinking. I was more interested in reading philosophy and, you know, things like this. Um, um, and so I decided to do what many uh, students do, you know, buy some time by doing a, an internship and things like this. And I ended up doing a hospital, well, a residency that put me in a hospital, in hospital dentistry, or that exposed me to that, that exposed me to delivering dental care in, you know, low-income clinics in, 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 in Winnipeg's inner city. Inner city. Um, but the most exciting part of it was the fact that it allowed me to uh, deliver care in, 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 in Nunavut, in essentially the far reaches of Canada's north, which I absolutely fell in love with. Um, um, and uh, I, I ended up ultimately doing some research there in relation to the political economy of dentistry in Nunavut, now, which was very interesting based on you know, what that means and with respect to state indigenous relations and, 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 you know, sort of, um, uh, fiduciary responsibility of the federal government to indigenous populations to provide them things like dental care. Um, you know, quite a, quite an interesting dynamic. Um, and then I, uh, so I did my master's um, uh, in community health sciences at the University of Manitoba. And on my committee was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Joe Coffert, Joseph Coffert, who is a very famous medical sociologist. And again, I was still a bit lost because I was at this point, what, I'm like 26, not you know, <laughs> not even kind of thing. Um, and uh, he said, you know, I want you to meet uh, one of my, uh, a guy that who's, who's, uh, who, who I supervised for his PhD. His name was Dr. David Locker. Um, and uh, he's a very, or was a very, very famous researcher in dentistry and um, in public health. Um, um, 
uh, and he, he passed away, unfortunately, uh, about a decade ago now. Um, point is, I said, you know, you should meet this guy. And he was taking PhD students at the time at U of T. So I decided to come to U of T and do a PhD as well as my dental public health specialty because uh, that was David David's area, and uh, and I continued my my research in the political economy of dentistry, and um, and, and and the rest is history. So um, you know, uh, um, yeah, it's uh, I've had a, I've had an incredibly blessed uh, blessed trajectory. So that's why I'm part of the reason why I'm so excited to talk to young people like you because. Hopefully you're as lucky as I've been. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about getting into dental school at 19. That's wild. I think the youngest person in our class was 21. Uh, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Good for you. That's a, that's a really that's a really awesome story. And um, I'm glad that you're able to attain so much success in your life and get to the position where you are at and make the waves that you're making in dental, uh, in public dental health. So that's sweet. Um, let's talk about public health dentistry. So what is it? And I'm guess, I mean, where can we even start as dentists in public health? So, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly what happens in Western, but, um, uh, you know, my experience at U of T uh, and also at the University of Manitoba is that we got courses in dental public health or what was at that point called community dentistry, right? Um, but just like in medicine uh, that has a community medicine specialty, um, you know, so right now uh, you've been hearing lots about medical officers of health, associate medical officers of health, uh, uh, you know, epidemiologists, uh, public health specialists, you know, these are all the people that um, sort of come up uh, under this part of medicine or dentistry. Um and, uh, and uh, you know, it deals with, uh, you know, the basics of epidemiology. So how to disease, uh, how does oral disease uh, behave in individuals and populations? Uh, what determines uh, things like utilization uh, of, de- of dental care and access to dental care? Um, so everything from sort of like the basic population health sciences to, to, to what I focus on, which is public policy. Um, um, you know, that is the nature of dental public health um, in, a, in an academic sense. When it comes to sort of what types of jobs do dental public health specialists get, um, they work in a variety of areas. I mean, our graduates at U of T uh, work for municipal governments, um, helping them run their, their public dental care programs. They work for provincial governments. Uh, they work for federal governments. Uh, um, 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 in, in, at the federal level, it's really focused on indigenous oral health care, given um, the role that the federal government plays with indigenous populations in Canada. Um, um, but uh, but we've had have graduates that work for the World Health Organization, um, um, you know, and 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 we've had graduates that that consult with uh, with uh, large insurers. Um, um, we've had graduates that, that work with uh, associations, so provincial and national dental associations, with regulators. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're a part of dentistry that often people don't have a sense of. And actually, sadly, a part of dentistry that often, um, uh, you know, uh, students and even, and even graduates and even dentists sort of relegate to the margins, you know, and they, you know, quote unquote, oh, they're not wet fingered dentists and things like this. I mean, that's not true. Um, you don't get to be a dental public health specialist if you haven't done a dentist, uh, you know, if you haven't done any dentistry, clinical dentistry. Um, um, but we end up in sort of a part of dentistry that dentists um, 
um, tend to sort of shy away from, which is sort of like public involvement, government involvement. But, you know, that's changing. Uh, and uh, and I actually argue with my students that uh, we're part of the brain trust of dentistry. I mean, I I always like to tell uh, my students, um, uh, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, that in the 1940s and 50s, when we were talking about things like including dental care in what was an, a burgeoning idea of a national system of health insurance in Canada, dental public health became very important to helping the profession understand what this was all about. And in fact, the um, the Dental Public Health Committee of the Canadian Dental Association, its name was changed to the Public Relations Committee because dental public health is sort of like this interface between um, civil society, um, you know, sort of people, the public, um, governments and dentistry. Right. And um, and you don't need to be a dental public health specialist to be able to play in the sandbox by any stretch of the imagination. But it's sort of that specialty that um, is is tasked with sort of understanding these issues at a high level, just like an oral surgeon is tasked with being able to deal with um, oral maxillofacial uh, surgical issues at a high level or a periodontist um, um, is there to deal with periodontal issues at a high level. So dental public health specialists are here to deal with um, a, a variety of the issues that I've spoken about at a high level. So that's, that's what we do. Thanks. And then do you, do dental public health specialists practice uh, alongside their work or is it typically kind of you do either or? Um, some do actually. One of my good colleagues at U of T, uh, Dr. Amir Zarpaju, is both a, um, um, a dental public health specialist and a PhD trained endodontist. Um, oh, wow. You know, the, uh, there's folks like that. Um, there's a dental public health specialist that in the end went back to clinical practice anyway. Um, there's <laughs> individuals like me that did clinical practice for about a decade after dental school, but then fully focused on on. On, 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 you know, sort of my academic and public policy work. Um, there's uh, individuals that have full careers and then sort of at the end have said, you know what, you know, I want to try something else or I want to still be involved in dentistry. Um, and because of particular interests, they end up choosing dental public health. So there's a variety. But in general, it's a, it's a discipline in dentistry that tends to take you away from clinical dentistry, um, um, which I'm not sure is totally positive, but y- you can't do, you can only serve one master, you know? <laughs> uh, one of my dearest friends from dental school, um, you know, uh, at one point was saying, you know, you, you're going to have to choose where what, what road you're going to travel on because you can't serve too many masters. Right. Um, and uh, and I'm not sure if he was necessarily right, but it was a good it was the right decision for me. So why don't we just kind of get right into it? Why isn't universal dental care a thing in Canada? There's obviously a need for it. Right. But then the obvious answer to that seems to be, well, it's a financial decision. So my take on universal dental care. So I'll start off by answering the, the question that you've, that you've, um, I think you asked her at least intimated, which was why isn't it included in um, Canada's national system of health insurance, which uh, all of us know uh, we call Medicare, which mm-hmm. includes physician and hospital services, but excludes things like pharmacy services, dental services, um, uh, physiotherapy services, and so on. So this was, um, this was, a significant portion of my uh, early research to answer that historical question or that open policy question. 
And in general terms, it was excluded uh, um, for economic reasons, so which is what you pointed to, that there was uh, uh, some concern that it might cost too much um, or that we couldn't afford it, which wasn't actually totally the case, but, um, but that definitely did play a role. Um, the other issue uh, that was at play at the time is that we actually thought two important things. We actually thought that dental caries, which was really the disease that we that was were, were that gathered a lot a lot of focus at that time, um, much more so than periodontal disease, for example. But the idea was that caries was really going to be a thing of the past because um, if you were a health policy planner in government at that at that time and looking at the oral epidemiological data that was being collected by Canadian governments, whether federal or provincial, um, you know uh, the number of caries free caries free children or the the burden of caries in the population was rapidly decreasing. So the number of caries free children was rapidly increasing. So the idea that it was going to that it re- was going to represent a huge public health burden in the future was a bit iffy, right? Yeah. And part of that was the fact that you know people were um, were uh, uh, taking much more care of their teeth as oral hygiene behavior became sort of like a more normalized behavior because it wasn't always the case. Um, you know, the introduction of the nylon bristle toothbrush in the in the 30s and 40s and ultimately the introduction of fluoridated toothpaste really changed how people sort of engage their mouth in a sense. Um, um, but in relation to, to a significant drop in dental caries was the fact that we were starting to fluoridate water systems. So government had viable you know, other viable public health options that didn't really necessitate in their in their minds anywhere at least what was written in, in in the public policy reports was this idea that we would need a national system of dental insurance like the national system of health insurance that we were trying to create um related to that was the fact that from the point of view of labor supply there simply was not enough dentists um, um modeling at the time or sort of forecasts of what we would need to mount a national dental care system. We would need probably about 25 to 26,000 dentists. And at that time, when we were talking about all this in the, let's say in the fifties and sixties, like we had like what, three to 4,000. So it just didn't seem like a viable option uh, uh, to Canadian governments uh, or to the federal government specifically. There's two other options or two other things that I really want to highlight here as well is that um, dentists didn't want to be part of a national system of dental insurance, just like physicians didn't want to be at the time, right? People often forget that there was a very famous provincial strike by physicians in in in, in Saskatchewan saying, like, we're not going to work for a, a, a single payer system, right? Wow. So, 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 you know, it was just not on the table for many physicians at the time, um, but also for dentists. Um, um, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, which actually are business related and professionally related as well. We can get into those uh, too, because I think they speak to important issues today. Uh, And then last but not least, which is probably the most important piece of this is that culturally, from the point of view of health policy, so bear with me. So I'm, 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 you know, putting culture and health policy together. The general idea was that brushing your teeth was an individual responsibility, right? I joke around with my international health policy colleagues where dentistry is sometimes um, included in national health systems, you know, that Canada's oral healthcare policy to be, to be, to be pretty frank is like brush your teeth, right? Um, Now, 
based on what we know now about um, the social determinants of health, about what actually determines levels of oral disease in individuals and populations, like that's just like a train wreck of a policy. Um, um, but 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 culturally, we tended to think that uh, you know, sort of brushing your teeth and sort of taking on that individual responsibility was all we would we would really need as compared to something like physician care uh, or hospital care where they, they were deemed more a social responsibility. So there's a, a variety of factors that were at play in the policy decisions that were made throughout the 40s and into the 1960s that essentially structured our national system of health insurance as we know it today. And, and, and that's how dentistry fit in, uh, fit in per se. Those issues are at play today. And what do I mean by that? We are now discussing you know, universal dental care. Um, and this is really germane to your interests in business and in in, um, in innovation. You know, because one could argue that some type of universal dental care might be considered a policy innovation. You know, this tension between individual and social responsibility. I mean, that's sort of like passe from the point of view of policy, even though it plays a huge role. Still, unfortunately, many people have written how that's just like. It's not productive to get us to healthy places from a public policy perspective. Um, um, and so, so you know, whatever, it still plays a role, though. Um, but COVID-19 has really blown up this notion of individual versus social responsibility, right? I mean, you know, we are now at a time where we need to sort of act as a collective in order to keep everyone safe. And that really is the foundation of any type of public policy discussion around getting more care to more people through something like a statutory health insurance program like Medicare. And we now know internationally that those jurisdictions, and actually we don't even need to go internationally, we can look in Canada, those jurisdictions that try to respond to COVID-19 by getting people to behave better, that Alberta is a good, good example, have tended to do worse than those jurisdictions that sort of say we need to act together and, and, and try to do things um, uh, in a collective, right? That again, that tension between individual and social responsibility. So, social responsibility is really winning the day, um, and COVID nineteen has really highlighted that. But it came before then, right? Um, and um, uh, and an example of that is the fact that most public policy people now realize that you know unfettered markets, sort of unregulated markets, don't do a really good job at distributing social goods like healthcare or like dental care in inefficient ways. Unregulated markets don't do a good job at distributing social goods again like health or dental care. And so they end up with a lot the markets end up being quite inefficient. Right. Um, so there's this idea that we need to sort of do more. Now when people say universal dental care, unfortunately they conflate that with Medicare. Right? right, which is a single payer system or a sort of first dollar coverage or a statutory health insurance model. I mean, there's really not even a handful. Like I could think of like one, two countries that do that in the world in terms of including dental care in their national systems of health insurance. Most countries do it through mixed financing and mixed delivery, meaning the public sector and the private sector finance the care and the public and the private sector deliver the care. We are actually a, a significant outlier internationally in, in, in terms of our almost complete focus 
uh, some would argue hegemonic focus on on private financing and private delivery that being you know that being canada um so i want to move us away from this idea of universal dental care more towards the idea of universal coverage for dental care which is everybody should have some coverage and we fall well short of that in canada Um, but if we go overseas to eu nations uh, many EU nations achieve near universal coverage. Yeah, their systems aren't perfect, but they tend to do a lot better than us. Uh, the best system, in my estimation, is the German system, which achieves u- near universal coverage for most healthcare services, including dental care, through the employer-employee relationship. Right? They mandate that employers provide uh, uh, health and dental benefits and so on. It's a bit more complicated like that. But the point is, there's many ways to do it from a legislative perspective and from an organizational perspective and from a financing and delivery perspective. And unfortunately, we tend to sort of fall back into this old t- and in my mind, tired debate about how everything should be in Medicare. It doesn't need to right. be that way. Now, I'm not saying that's not a good idea. I'm just saying there are many more options for us. Quick, uh, quick follow-up question. Um, so you said, like during the '40s and '60s, they were putting out much more public health measures versus going like the universal route. How have you found like the sentiment, uh, maybe at the federal or provincial level, to to have changed over time? Um, so I still think there's a lot of reticence from provincial governments and federal governments to really get into the dental care business, right? But we have seen a lot of movement. I mean, um, here in Ontario, uh, over the last decade, we've introduced uh, a new children's program called Healthy Smiles Ontario, which is a bit of a conglomeration of his, you know, a patchwork of programs for kids. But we are doing something. Most recently, we established the Ontario Seniors Dental Care Program. Right. If you go from province to province, you'll find incremental gains to public programming. Um, um, So there is starting to be an appetite. But more importantly, there's an appetite. Well, let me just keep going. In the the last federal election before COVID-19, the NDPs, uh, and they're still talking about it, the Greens, all put forward the idea that we need more coverage for dental care and got the parliamentary budget office to to cost some of the plans the liberal government actually in the end costed some of some of the options themselves for what not what they were thinking about but just sort of like to sort of just come you know cover off uh, their bases one one might say um but ultimately that type of political pressure or policy pressure resulted in um, the speech from the throne, not this last one, but the previous one, saying we should really explore this, this idea of a national dental care plan. Then um, the 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 mandate letter from from Justin Trudeau to his uh, Minister of Health um, asked the minister to explore the idea of a of a national dental care plan. So I think governments are my my hunch is that governments feel that they need to do something about this because the electorate is now wanting to do something about this. Uh, and by the way, this completely dovetails into um, into some of your interests. Um, um, you know, because ultimately, if you care about the profession of dentistry, uh, the business of dentistry, policy innovations, um, um, as examples, 
you're ultimately going to care about how to get more care uh, or better care, not just necessarily more care, but how to get better care to, to, to more people, right? Which is ultimately an issue of market efficiency. So um, lots of interesting things here uh, for your group. And um, I, hope, I hope our discussion highlights at least some of that. Quick question. Um, throughout your relatively lengthy uh, dental career now, what have you found to be like the biggest challenges in the dental public uh, health field? Is it resources, like getting funding? Is it igniting interest in within younger generation of dentists to get in, into public health? I remember reading like a statistic somewhere that only like 1.4% of people are even interested in going into, into public health. So if you translate that to like a class, like we'd maybe be lucky if we had one person to go into public health. So what do yeah, you find no, to be no. the biggest challenge? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good question, um, Bavia, because um, from the point of view of professional challenges, right? I think that's what you're asking. What are the professional challenges for the dental public health discipline? You know, just like any specialty, there are specific challenges to the discipline. Um, and I think one of the challenges is just what you said, interest from um, from dental students. I mean, when I went into the dental school, I didn't think, well, I'm going into dental school because I want to be a dental public health specialist. I mean, I didn't even know the, the, the discipline existed, right? Um, um, my, my, my academic and my sort of intellectual interests sort of pushed me in that direction. So it became a natural fit and that's great. Great. Right. Um, um, but I think over time, governments, so as governments have disinvested in public dental care programs, right? I'll give you a quick statistic. In the early 1980s, at the height of public dental care programming in Canada, out of every dental care dollar, about 25 cents of that dollar was funded by governments. Today, it's about four to six cents. So from the 80s onwards, there was a great government significant government disinvestment in public dental care programs, which results in many of the challenges we're having today. But nonetheless, with that retrenchment or that moving away from public funding or a public focus on dental care, um, there was a lot of job losses in dental public health. You know, governments were saying, well, you know, we're just going to sort of, I don't want, it's not as simple as saying we're going to outsource this to the private sector because it's not that simple. But nonetheless, if we're going to use that terminology, you know, as public dental care programs were transferred over to the public sector, um, you know, governments felt that there was no need for dental public health expertise. And by the way, that has come to bit them in the in the arse pretty significantly um, based on current trends and in, in sort of greater interest in, in these types of issues and has ultimately damaged the profession because there's nobody within governments to really liaise like in the past, right? You know, as a dentist, like any healthcare professional, do you want to be talking to somebody that understands what your life is about? Or do you want to be talking to a bureaucrat that has no idea what's going on with you clinically or professionally, right? So so everybody's kind of lost, uh, unfortunately. But we're, we're, we're making gains. So for example, in 2005, we established a, a, an office of the chief dental officer at the federal level. We hadn't had one since the early 80s. Um, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the joke is don't call it a comeback. We've been here for years, right? <laughs> um, um, but, but yeah, it, there's a bit of a, of a comeback um, in terms of interest from, from, from undergrads and, uh, and, and also from dentists as well with respect to these issues because um, they're terribly important for us as a profession. Um, and, and increasingly that's uh, more and more recognized, so that's wonderful. Um, um, and in fact, the future of dental public health that I wanna see is one where we are located in associations and dental associations and in dental regulatory authorities, um, more so than governments. I think those jobs will always be there to a certain extent, but I think we can do so much more by 
by by working with within the profession um, than working um, uh, in the past. Unfortunately, it was seen sort of a bit of an adversarial position, um, um, adversarial position. Pardon me, within government, and 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 and, and it should have never been that, and and it definitely should not be that. So you mentioned trends in public health dentistry. Mm-hmm. Can you speak on those trends? Well, what's the situation like in Canada right now? Okay, so I'll just quickly, you know, sort of tie off this discussion of professional trends. I mean, I think I've talked a little bit about those. There's interest in the specialty, um, you know, greater opportunities for employment, whether in the public or private sector. Um, You know, uh, just quickly to sort of give a sense of how important it is. Um, you know, many American insurers uh, uh, hire dental public health expertise, whether on a consulting basis or on a full-time basis, because they need it to understand what the what what disease trends mean for 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 expenditures, what what you know differences in infection prevention and control regimes, which is a big big thing right now that we're experiencing. What does that mean for um, the practice of dentistry? So, lots of things going on in both the public and private sector. So, I'm going to tie that off because, um, you know, now talk about trends in terms of public policy, okay? So uh, we've already talked about one of those trends, which is universal dental care. Um, And uh, um, that's important from the point of view of public policy and dentistry. I don't want to call that public health dentistry or dental public health, but it's about public policy and dentistry. It's important to all of us. Um, Other trends include um, things like, you know, again, the easy ones right now is infection prevention and control and what the evidence is behind the current approaches being taken in the context of COVID-19. So we're seeing significant shifts in how people are thinking about how to deliver dental care, uh, uh, what that means to, uh, you know, using business terms, what does that mean to operations? What does that mean to, to, to trying to find, um, um, you know, uh, the most efficient way to deliver care? Um, uh, you know, so uh, the other trends are really trends around large, very broad public policy issues, you know, which include how, how should we organize dentistry moving forward in a society, right? And by the way, this is a discussion that is being had across many OECD nations and across many um, um, many uh, developed and developing nations. Like this is really starting to hit the airwaves. Like for example, the United Nations recently um, supported a, a, a group of countries that were pushing the idea of dentistry within the universal health coverage agenda. Right, which is one of the sustainable development goals uh, of the United Nations. So, like you know, big big players. Um, the w- the World Health Organization just started talking about dentistry for the first time in a long long time. Again, around uh, what does dentistry mean for societies and so on. Um, and uh, so again, that that dovetails into issues about how dentistry will be organized moving forward, how it will be financed, and by finance, I, I mean. Uh, by the way, for organization, I mean, how is it governed and how is it managed? Uh, and I can speak to examples that relate to COVID-19 to show you how important these considerations are. So, but I'll get to that. So governance means, uh, uh, sorry, uh, organization means how it's governed and managed. Financing means who pays for it and how it's paid for, right? You know, in Canada, we have a system that's almost completely focused on fee-for-service care, but that's not the way it functions in many other places in the world. Right. So uh, the idea of changing the way dental care is paid for, that's like that's starting to bubble up as a public policy discussion, not just among governments, but also among private payers. Right. 
Um, then in terms of delivery, um, it's it's uh, who pays, uh, sorry, in terms of delivery, it's who delivers it, how it's delivered. Um, you know, again, in Canada, we have a very sort of um, homogenous view of dental care delivery, meaning it's a dentist, a dental hygienist, and a sole proprietorship practice on a fee-for-service basis, you know, et cetera. But there's many other um, ways to deliver dental care. Um, um, you know, there's the discussion of dental therapy. Uh, I don't want to get into that today because that's a quite a long discussion. But the point is, governments are now thinking about who else might be able to deliver dental care in order to have markets that are more efficient. Um, um, you know, is, is the sole proprietorship fee-for-service uh, fee model the only way to deliver it? Um, I think it's a good way. Uh, I would never say that it's a bad bad thing for sure, but there are there's just more heterogeneity and more 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 things for us to explore. And all these things are now bubbling up to the surface. So I think, and many leaders in dentistry now recognize that we're, we're about to enter, uh, potentially about to enter a very significant time of, uh, I could say upheaval, a very significant time of reform. Um, um, you know, um, I think, I think the future for dentistry does not does not look like what it is today. Um, and that's not a bad thing. I think that's very healthy for everybody. Um, and I can definitely get into those things. Let's get into those things. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to the organization um, of dentistry. So how it's governed and managed. Um, you know, I think COVID-19 has really exposed the, uh, it's, it's, it's created or it's revealed an uncomfortable variability in how dental regulatory authorities have addressed the issue of COVID-19, right? You know, some provinces, some dental regulatory authorities have decided to do this. Some have decided to do, you know, something else. And not all of it can be explained away by sort of the prevalence or the incidence of COVID-19 in the population, right? You know, why is it that in Quebec, you, you don't necessarily need enclosed operatories, but in, in Ontario and Saskatchewan, you do. Why is it that, um, you know, uh, fallow times? Why is it that in some places you only need 15 minutes and other places you need up to three hours? Like, I mean, uh, uncomfortable variability, right? Um, so that speaks to concerns about how dentistry is governed and managed, right? Like, does it make sense for us to have so much variability? Um, you know, uh, um, so that's one example of why that matters. Again, financing, you know, such a low level of public financing. Is that is that a concern to us? Well, it's increasingly a concern to our profession. I mean, so many people don't have access to care because governments aren't simply aren't investing enough money. Um, you know, uh, in terms of payment, there's there's a big push, especially and in and in, in, in many developed nations, whether it be the U.S., whether it be e, um, European Union nations, to move away from fee for service. You know, there's we know from lots of historical research that paying people on salary incentivizes undertreatment. That makes sense to you, right? Right. Why would I, you know, if I'm getting the same amount of money, if I'm, you know, filling, you know, five teeth an hour or two teeth an hour, what does it matter? Right. Right. So it tends to incentivize under treatment. Fee for service incentivizes over treatment because I just want to do as much as possible within a small, you know, shorter period of time because that's how I make money. Right. And, and, and this isn't just in dentistry. This is, this is in, 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 in medicine, any healthcare delivery environment. So, so governments for quite a while now have started to sort of try to figure out how might we pay to sort of get at that sweet spot where we, um, where we pay 
practitioners the way they most of them want to get paid, which is on a fee-for-service basis, but also pay them in ways that allows us to achieve um, um, better outcomes for people, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a significant public policy discussion right now occurring all over the world uh, in, in, in healthcare and now starting to include dentistry on this notion of pay, pay um, value-based payment or pay for performance, right? You know, um, 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 how do we pay, not to say that we've filled X number of teeth, but how do we pay to make sure that we're achieving good, good outcomes, good health outcomes, because that's what matters, but also most importantly, value for money, right? We want to make sure, you know, there's a very, uh, I don't know where this expression, who coined this expression, but it's essentially getting the right care to the right people at the right time in the right place. Like, you know, essentially trying to try and yeah. ride that wave, right, of, 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 of efficiency in terms of, uh, in, in, this, in this case, in terms of payment. Um, and that's right. That's with us today. I mean, I'm involved in public policy discussions internationally as well as nationally on that issue. So it's not like that's, you know, some, some pipe dream. That, that we don't need to worry about that that's 15, 20 years away. Like that's going to happen uh, soon. Now, does that mean we'll move away from the fee-for-service system? I don't know. I always like to joke around with uh, one of my colleagues that, you know, it was the expression that uh, capitalism is, 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 is the worst, is the worst, but, 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 but it's, um, but it's the only system that's ever worked. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Is fee for service the worst? Probably. But is it the only system that works? Maybe, you know, we, we now need to sort of experiment. And, and, and yeah. you know, there's many international examples of people starting to experiment on the healthcare side and increasingly on the dental care side, right. uh, you know. Um, so, uh, so that, so that's uh, financing and we won't get into delivery, but I just want to make, give you a sense of how real this is for people. Yeah, right? for sure. I, that's interesting because I, I wonder, I wonder how much dentistry takes, takes on from medicine in terms of the system that medicine uses. So I wanted to get your opinion on this, Carlos. I know in the East coast, um, you, you know, they, they have a substantial shortage of primary care physicians, right? And so, and so they've had to kind of reform their approach as to how they're going to compensate these doctors. Right. And they don't want to, again, just like you mentioned, um, they don't want to, you know, incentivize less treatment. They don't want to incentivize over treating. Right. And so they've kind of adopted this uh, patient on retainer approach uh, where, you know, physicians are incentivized based on the cohort of individuals they look after for a year. And that way they can deliver the comprehensive care that they need without having to schedule or worrying to schedule about, you know, an extra appointment or not scheduling an extra appointment, missing time. Does dentistry do the same thing? Is is there is there things that dentistry takes from that? Yeah, unfortunately, not in Canada. Um, you know, we're so fixated on a fix on a fee for service system. But in other places, people, you know, I'm not. I have I have a sense of what you mean by that, and it's and it's and it's more complex than what I'm about to tell you. But let's just start with the basics, which is, um, which is. Uh, um, um, you know, per capita payment, you know, yeah. um, which is, you know, uh, I'm paid for having the same amount for having a certain roster in my practice. Um, um, you know, it used to, you know, we can just call it capitation per head, right? Yeah. Per, per cap. So, um, so that's one way of paying for services, right? Um, um, the thing is, it gets much more complex. So you can pay that way and you can also include a sort of like a fee per item yeah. They're even trying to get away from the term fee for service. Now they're calling it fee per item. So you're paid per capita. There is a little bit of a fee per item payment. Um, but then there's also value-based payment, which means like, you know, if, if we know that your population is getting healthier because of the care that you're providing for them, there'll be some type of bonus for you. 
right? Right. Um, and and this is this is occurring in the U.S. already with respect to dentistry. It's early, early days, but people are yeah. now starting to experiment, right? Yeah, it's cool. It's 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 interesting to see where this kind of policy is going. Um, yeah. How would pay for performance work? You touched upon bonuses, but that that would be. Um, uh, more affecting the the dentist and not the business owner, not the person running the practice. Like, so, so Chris, how would pay for can, performance work? Yeah, exactly. If you can answer that question, you'd solve a public policy problem for me right now. Like, how does it work? Everybody talks about it, but how the heck does it work? Um, I think that's what we need to figure out. How might something like that work? Um, you know, what's very interesting is that these blended models or blended payment work work interestingly if you have a, a large population that you're taking care of you know so examples of this in the u.s are uh, large uh, i know this is a dirty word unfortunately it shouldn't be but large managed care type of plans organize, right. organizations do a little bit of this but there's also group practices specifically in california and, and and sort of the upper west coast of the u.s like private practitioners that work in a group that that, that have approached governments uh, to say we'll manage uh, you know uh, you know some population that you cover and we'll do it in the context of 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 of, of blended payment, which again really is a combination of capitation um, uh, or per person fee per item, um, and we're going to show you that we're producing value by by tracking people's health right uh, even as something simple and it's not simple uh, because i love it but people sort of like eh, you know self-reported oral health man that's a powerful measure you know tracking things like self-reported oral health can we see improvements in people's how they feel about their oral health um what about patient satisfaction you know satisfaction as an outcome measure is really really important um so this also dovetails into issues of quality of care so the payment comes in Demonstrate that you're delivering good quality of care, meaning the fillings are staying in, the patients are happy, um, um, you know, people are getting healthier, and then there's 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 a bonus payment for you at the end of the year. And then there's also a different risk adjustment, like, you know, if you're dealing with a very sick population, it's not necessarily fair to hold you to like, oh, you got to make everybody healthy. It's like, well, these are some of the sickest people. We can't just make them healthy overnight. It doesn't work that way. If we can even make them healthy, per se, we still need to treat their diseases uh, and, and, and symptoms and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's different sort of like risk adjustment, meaning like who takes on the risk, right? If you as a private group are willing to take on the risk, there's more bonus for you at the end. But if you're saying you're not willing to take on the risk, then that bonus payment may be a little bit less, right? So it's a very complex environment, which I'm learning a lot about right now, because I'm very interested in it. Um, but you're right, how does it work? I think I think in the end, all these ideas are great. We just now need to explore what is being done um, internationally, uh, what what seems to work or what are best practices, and then sort of see can that can any of that even work in, in, in the Canadian environment? Like, you know, I did a survey for my PhD, it's old now 2006. Um, I published it in 2007 that asked dentists, would you be willing to consider different forms of payment and like 98.8 percent of people were like not just fee for service so you know um you know i don't know whether that statistic would be the same today you know the uh, people ch uh, people change the profession changes i'd be asking different you know cohort of dentists but 
um, my point is, is that if you have that many providers just really focused on only one form of payment, well, it's not like they're going to magically decide that they want to do it. You got to socialize the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you could sort of play the play it the hard way and say governments and insurers will just say, guess what? This is how we're paying you now, whether you like it or not. Right. I don't think that's really smart either in terms of playing effectively in the sandbox. Yeah. Um, 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 but I think there's also one very important question that people don't ask is like, what's the evidence that this actually ends up ends up improving people's health any better than uh, other types? Like, I think there's a lack of evidence generally, um, but, you know, we'll get there. Public policy doesn't change overnight, right? Um, you know, you guys are, what, second year, so you'll graduate in 2023, right? Is that the deal? Um so, you know, maybe in 2033, you might have to start, you know, dealing with this, right? Um, you know, it, it takes time, right? Yeah. You said capitalism sucks, but it's the only one that works. I might have paraphrased that. But I, I feel like something did. like this. If, <laughs> but um, now let oh me, God, let me, let me speak to that say? because I think it is important, okay? Um, you know, I'm not saying I totally agree with that. Uh, 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 well, actually, I can't say I agree with that, but I think there's a real nuance there. It's unregulated markets don't work. Unfettered markets lead to where we are today with significant income inequality, with 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 the you know the um, you know the, the rich getting richer at insane insane speed, you know insane rates. And I always like to remind dentists about this because you know many dentists are like, oh come on, you know you you you, you, you red commie bastard, you know. So <laughs> you know when 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 they're talking about the point one percent, they're not talking about you, dentist, you know. Like, you know, they're talking about people that are making billions and billions, millions and millions. And I don't know many hundred millionaire dentists. Right. You know, so so I think it's kind of strange the way people think about this. But nonetheless, um, we're now in a situation where where unregulated markets in many areas are running rampant. Um, um, and, and, And many dentists would be surprised to think, well, dentistry isn't an unregulated market. In many ways, it's quite unregulated. Um, um, you know, that's one of those areas where it's like, we're starting to get into areas that might cause your computers to burn up. So we'll stay away from those areas, but, um, and and get you a lot of hate mail, but, um, but you know, the most efficient markets, at least from the point of view of distributing social goods, like health and dental care tend to be regulated markets, right? We're not selling widgets. We're providing, um, you know, services that help meet people's existential threats. Like I may die from this toothache, like you, you could, right? So, um, if not, you'll suffer significant morbidity. So, so I think regulated markets are where it's at. So, yeah, and that's that's capitalism. Um, but what, what we have today is not what I think many people many people envisioned. It's uh, it's interesting to see where it all go. And I, I actually, I'm, I'm really excited to see how you know everything sort of adapts. Like you mentioned, dental therapists previously. I know that's on a lot of people's minds. I'm kind of interested to see how that integrates. But let's talk about what's going on right now. Okay, um, so. Yeah, dentistry is fee for service. What are some of the benefits and what are some of the limitations of that? Let's just let's just talk about the current business state of dentistry. I think the system works really well for a lot of people, right? You know, when you have, you know, you know, when you have upwards of 80 to 90 percent utilization in, in children, um, you know, when you have upwards of 60 to 70 percent utilization for, you know, the average uh, middle, you know, sort of middle class, middle income 
person, um, um, you know, that's covered by an employer sponsored dental plan. Um, that's that works well. Unfortunately, though, there's huge holes in the system, right? Like a third of Canadians don't have any type of dental care coverage. And we know that coverage is really, really important. So important that if you compare high income families with and without dental benefits, the high income families that have the dental benefits go more often to the dentist than the high income families without the dental benefits, right? Um, so, so coverage really, really matters. Uh, so when a third of the population isn't covered, that's kind of challenging. The specific challenge with respect to employer-sponsored dental benefits is the fact that labor markets have radically changed over the last 30 years. Uh, you know, as globalization took hold and as large, employ- large companies sort of had to become more competitive in a global marketplace, they had to find cost savings. And one of the places they found it is in changing the nature of employment. Right. It's like, guess what? We're not going to employ you full time. We're going to employ you just a little bit less so we can call you part time or even better. You know, the Uberization or whatever the expression is of everything. You're actually not an employee. You're a contractor, which means we don't have to meet all these legislative requirements to give you, you know, whether it be health and dental benefits or different types of, you know, um, social supports or whatever the case may be. Um, So you end up with a lot of people with the system starting to buckle a little bit because it's so married to employer sponsored benefit plans. Right now, I think that's a great system for many people, but we're now starting to see weaknesses there um, in the context of underinsurance. Meaning, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a family that makes eighty thousand dollars in Toronto, um, and you know, my kidney is braces. Well, eighty thousand dollars in Toronto isn't going to get you very far, right? right? Uh, and and your coverage doesn't give you, you know, uh, your your job isn't one of these uh, uh, jobs that gives you. I mean, I don't know whose coverage gives them. Um, gives them um, uh, orthodontic benefits or, or implant, you know, implant benefits. Like, so we're starting to deal with the nature of underinsurance, right? It's just not being uninsured. Then there's folks like the working poor who have jobs, so they can't get access to public dental care programs, which aren't that great anyway, but they can't have access to even that. But they also don't have a job that gives them employer-sponsored benefits because they're not good quality jobs. These people really, really suffer. I mean, that's the, a huge hole. Right. Um, so uh, the other thing is, is like, let's think of the system. You know, I, I don't want to ask you guys personal questions, but my sense is that if you're the average dental student, you guys are going to graduate with significant debt. Yep. Right. That's yep. unsustainable. That's unsustainable. Um, you know, so where, like, when did the system break that you can't even get adequate support? Uh, for 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 education, right? And that's yeah. really way up the chain. I mean, this is not a problem of dentistry. This is a problem of how governments fund post-secondary education and, and how governments fund dental education compared to medical education, whatever. But the point is we're seeing problems now associated with the sort of how we're doing things, right? Um, how about dental supplies, right? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I really want to remind you guys of something. And I talk about this lots with my colleagues. Dentistry, you know, the golden era of dentistry was said to be the 1950s, right? You know, we were the most trusted profession, supposedly. I've never been able to document that with any historical (laughs) literature. But nonetheless, people talk about it that way. Uh, So we'll just call it an oral tradition, right? I'll, I'll believe it. Um, and there is some documentary evidence about how that we were held in very high regard in the profession. I mean, in, in society, because we were seen as supporting things that were going to quote unquote, put us out of business. Think about it. How responsible of a professional are you? How altruistic are you that you're willing to put all of your political capital behind community water fluoridation when it could 
you know, it, it could essentially take away your business, right? Because that's yeah. what really, that was a lot of the discussion back then. So we were seen as incredibly altruistic and responsible, right? right. Um, and that resulted in the public liking us more and wanting to consume more of the services that we, we were to provide, right? So there was significant economic growth in the dental economy or in the dental care market from the 50s onwards. Then governments established um, um, tax regimes uh, for employees and employers to want to take on these employer-sponsored benefits or non-wage benefits. So just very quickly, you know, I at U of T pay a premium every month uh, for my uh, family's employer-sponsored dental plan. U of T matches that premium. I'm not taxed on that premium. U of T also gets to write off that premium off its bottom line, uh, if you can think about it that way, Uh, meaning they're not taxed generally. That's not totally true, but they they enjoy a lot of tax-free status, right? Right. Um, So all of a sudden, people went to the dentist more because now they had coverage. So before they went because they liked us, they wanted, you know, um, um, they they, they thought that having straight white teeth was a cultural ideal that they wanted to play play a part of, right? That happened like really far back. It's not new. Um, um, So then we saw huge gains, like a boom, a boom through the 70s with respect to what people were willing to pay for for dentistry, right? As as more and more of the population um, was covered. And this, this growth existed into the late 80s early 90s there was a little bit of a slowdown here and there because of economic recessions blah blah but then you start getting the cultural ideal of 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 white straight teeth as really pushing dental consumption right right then all of a sudden it became like you know um you know sort of like the instagram generation got going and you know (laughs) uh, um you know sort of like the culture of the self got going that drove dental consumption uh, dental care consumption even more like we rode a wave of economic growth in dentistry that really only ended about maybe you know some people would say a decade ago um you know my, my you know my review of expenditure data suggests that it was going well into 2015 2000 you know 16 17 right oh, wow right and now all of a sudden we have covid-19 now Based on some of the evidence we're looking at or some of the data we're looking at, the dental care market has, you know, bounced back pretty well. But now there's a lot of weakness in the system. You know, if we keep going the way we're going, I mean, God willing, uh, these these vaccines work, these variants aren't as bad as we might think. You know, we all behave well and stay at home <laughs> and stuff like this. You know, we're going to get past this and, 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 and it's going to be okay. But what if we don't and all of a sudden family income loss and job loss really becomes an issue? Well, again, when you're tied to employer sponsored mark, you know, employer sponsored benefit markets so tightly, you've you got a problem, right? right. Um, um, disposable income, family income loss, you've got a problem. Right, uh, all the, the 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 significant rise in, in 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 supplies that you have to pay for, right? Because of the new uh, infection prevention and control regimes, all of a sudden you got a problem, and we can't just keep raising dental care prices because that's what's gotten us a little bit into the problem we have right now with respect to access to dental care. It's becoming unaffordable, and I don't want to position that as it's the dentist's fault. It's not. It's a it's a system problem. Right. You know, what's the other expression? Um, You know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like something's wrong with the game. 
And, and, and I don't think we're paying close enough attention to that. I think there's many people in dentistry that now really are like, yeah, like something's not quite right. Whether it's your, the, the, your tuitions, right. Um, whether it's uh, uh, the, the, the dental care prices or where they are, um, it's not so simple anymore. Um, so to me, there's a lot of inward look, you know, we have to do a lot of inward looking into our profession with respect to, um, with respect to, you know, what we might want from governments, uh, from how we do our business that I think require attention. And, 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 and I really want to give props to my, my profession, like to, to the people that represent us and at the Canadian Dental Association, Ontario Dental Association, across the country, people are really starting to say, we need to take a very close look at this because it's the health of our profession. Man, that it's such a it's such an interesting conversation to have, and you can go on and on with it. We, we're getting close to an hour, and we try to keep these around an hour. So I wanted to end off on something that would kind of wrap this up. As dental students, if we want to make change in public health, or if we want to take action on these kind of things, what can our first steps be? What should we be doing right now? I think they should be they should be doing what you guys are doing, asking questions and and sort of uh, trying to figure out what. What, what what the future may hold. I will say, I don't want you to think about this as a public health issue. I want you to think about this as a professional issue. Right. I think now we're facing a place where dentistry status is a regulated health profession. People don't don't appreciate it as much as I think, you know, maybe I have lens into certain areas, but we're at risk of losing our regulated, uh, our status as a regulated health profession. You know, that's a bit extreme. Will we ever not be a regulated healthcare professional? No, but our status may, may, may suffer. Right. Right. When we don't meet access to care issues. So again, it's not a pub, it is a public health problem, but I want us to think about this as a professional problem. When we, when we, you know, sort of think that dental care prices can increase just, you know, uh, willy nilly, I know nobody takes it uh, to that extreme, but if we just don't pay attention to stuff like that, uh, if we don't meaningfully contribute to public policy discussions, right, you know, we should, what about, you know, uh, if you want to get involved, why wouldn't you get involved in a, um, a anti-poverty lobby? Why wouldn't you be concerned about uh, about, um, um, you know, the role of sugar and how that's marketed to children? Um, You know, what about employment security or income security throughout the life course? Now, you guys are, you know, shaking your head and agreeing. And I think that's wonderful. But there's many dentists who when I say things like that are like, what? What is this guy talking about? I mean, what's the role of dentists in employment security? It's like, well, if you don't see the role that you have in making sure that employment markets stay healthy so that there's a, so that there's a, you know, a good opportunity for uh, employers to provide employment, uh, employer sponsored benefits, you're not paying attention. If you don't think you have a role in, 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 in worrying about how f- food or sugar is marketed to children or taxing sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, um, you know, just like we do tobacco um, and things like this, I mean, you're not paying attention. You know, I, and, and I actually, this to me was outstanding. The American Dental Association recently uh, made a formal statement that it was going to support federal legislation in the U.S. aimed at the social determinants of health. Think about that. Right. I mean, the world is changing and I think we need to change with it. So I think I want So if you want to do anything, ask questions, learn about these issues, get involved in organized dentistry, but get involved in a way not to maintain the status quo, not to safeguard the hill that we've been able to conquer. Right. 
get involved in organized dentistry to promote things that 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 reflect who we are as a profession which is being altruistic making sure that we 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 care about the public good you know um um not just about um um you know the business side of dentistry which is obviously very important because it's naive to think that dentists aren't running businesses but to do it in a way that's that that um, that um that safeguards our status as a regulated health profession and i think we do that through responsible um action and and leadership so so really that's the that, that's the nature of, of of my message to, to to young 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 people involved in dentistry if i may ask a quick follow-up question um i know we talked a lot about the dentistry as a profession and one of the things i think is like relatively unique about canada is that we have we kind of have the dental hygiene model where dental hygienists are not you know in like in australia or, or wherever it, it's pretty much like it, it confined to north america have, have there been any specific public health measures to try to tap into the dental hygiene um field if you will and not just dentists i'm not totally sure what you're asking um um Bavia, but let me give it a shot Okay. Um, you know, are you talking about making uh, better use of dental hygienists in the delivery of care? Yeah, essentially. essentially. Yeah, there there is. I, but I I will re, I will I will focus you more to dental therapy, right? The idea that there's other groups out there that can provide uh, not just dental hygiene care, but but like dental services at a at a at a at a more basic level than than the dentist. I mean, you are you're you're like a Ferrari, man. You know, like after your training, I mean, you. Still Still got a while to go, but you're like the Ferrari of the <laughs> dental world, right? You know, you should be doing the complicated, sophisticated stuff. But across the world, there's a lot of countries that, in the U.S., interestingly, is moving on this quite quite aggressively lately. This idea that there should be—I don't like the term, but people use the term mid-level provider—that there should be another provider that provides just the basic stuff, right? Um, and and there is now discussion in the dental hygiene community about. You know, maybe the dental hygienist could could get some more training to become sort of like what they call, I think, a dental hygiene therapist. Right. This is the, back to that whole idea about rethinking how who is involved in the delivery of care, um, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of interesting discussion here. I wish we had more time. Yeah, awesome. No, I'm very glad that you guys invited me. So thanks very much. And I wish you the best. And um, and I always leave most of those conversations letting people know that I, I've never heard of a pandemic that does not end. This will end. So just hang in there and, and, and we'll see you on the other side. Great. Thanks, Carlos. So this has been the Business of Drilling. Go check out debbieacademy.ca if you want any more content and follow us on Facebook. You can also get us uh, on Instagram at debbie.academy. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.